Hello, lovelies. Well, I have to admit, I have been incredibly blessed to spend quality time with some of the most important people in our field. And one of them is Robert Lawler. Now, I don't know if you've heard of Robert Lawler before, if you're a young person. (laughs) But for those of us who are a bit older, we may be acquainted with the work of Robert Lawler. Robert Lawler is a fascinating individual. Robert was born in 1938, and he is a mythographer, symbolist, and New Age writer, says Wikipedia. But after spending time with him, I found that there's a lot more interesting things to Robert Lawler. The first of all is his appearance. From the back, you would think that he is a 30-year-old Tom Cruise type. He is in incredibly great shape and has jet black hair naturally as a result of leading an incredibly healthy lifestyle. He was also an artist, and um, his work with polyurethane or something like that poisoned him. So he went on a rice fast, a brown rice fast for years. And he explained that that detoxed him so greatly that the doctors said that he even detoxed out his vaccinations from when he was a child or something crazy like that. Like he detoxed all the way. But when he was an artist, he used to hang out at the factory, Andy Warhol Studios, in fact, (laughs) somewhere between 63, I don't know, and 87, who knows the exact dates, but um, he was even offered to become a male escort, (laughs) which, you know, he, he was a very good looking man, so that makes a lot of sense. But um, as a result of his art and getting poisoned and going on his um, rice fast, he became a yoga student of Sri Aurobindo and was one of the founding members of a place called Auroville. Now, Auroville is something else. Auroville wants to be a universal town where men and women of all countries are able to live in peace and progressive harmony above all creeds, all politics, and all nationalities. The purpose of Auroville is to realize human unity. How amazing is that, right? We could all (laughs) do with a little bit more of that. And Robert was um, instrumental in the creation of this town and his wife as well. Robert's had two wives, and I keep um, getting confused which wife did which, so I'm just going to say his wife, and I'm sure you can Google it if you want more detail. I can't wait for somebody to say that about Chance. (laughs) Oh, no. So basically, it was a town in India where um, essentially it was a pioneering collective of people that tried to create a township where humanity could um, blossom. They believed that humanity in its current state was a transitioning state. 
and that we could all unite and blossom. And Robert was part of that, an important part of that, and invented some things and became very much indispensable to them. But the other thing that Robert Lawler is famous for is translating the work of Shwala de Lubitsch. And um, besides the other books that he's written, his work with Shwala is indeed one of the reasons that we have this remarkable English translation. And I now remember it's Deborah Lawler. Deborah Lawler was Robert's wife, and she and Robert actually spent a lot of time with Lucy Lammy doing these translations, Lucy being the daughter of Isha and Shwala de Lubitsch. And so the two of them really got immersed in this information and were able to bring us this incredible legacy. In the foreword to the Temple in Man, Robert makes some really great observations. And he talks a little bit about symbolism, and he talks a little bit about alchemy. And so I think that it might be a useful transition for us. I tried to translate two paragraphs of Italian, esoteric Italian, and I'll tell you what, nearly killed me. And so Robert translating this, not just the Temple in Man, but the Temple of Man and several others of uh, Schwala's books must have been completely immersed in this material. And so I think reading a little bit of Robert Lawler will help us even more get to the point of the pharaonic consciousness, which is what we're playing with. So... Here comes Robert in Schwala de Lubitz's scrupulous examination of the art and architecture of the Temple of Luxor. At least two concurrent levels are being developed at any given point. One is the study of Egypt as a civilization that existed in a factual geographic place and time, including its people, mythology, social forms, its chronological unfolding, its monuments and artifacts. But this level is only a backdrop or support for another Egypt, which might be defined as a quality of intelligence. This is Egypt as an evocation of a particular civilization and expression of a universal power of higher intellection. This Egypt is outside of chronological considerations. It is, rather, both an ever-present and a recurring possibility of consciousness. In his approach to Egypt, Shuala de Lubitsch stresses the view that in order to comprehend the significance of a heightened phase among man's varied historical expressions, we need to impose on ourselves the discipline of attempting to enter into the mentality of the people and the spirit of the time. To do so would mean more than just learning the language and symbols of the period under study. 
we must also awaken in ourselves a living inner rapport with the material being researched and identify with it in a potentially self-transforming manner. Of course, this ideal can never fully be attained, as our present consciousness is inevitably with us. But on the other hand, by continuing to sift all of history through our present rationalized, individualized, psychological mentality, we distort beyond recognition the content and the meaning of the past. This distortion often occurs when we try to interpret the great mythological cultures of Egypt or Vedic India in particular. We tend to lose sight of the fact that these cultures were expressing a different mentality and values from ours and that they had a completely different understanding of the goal and purpose of life. As a result, in all of their science, art and knowledge, these cultures use distinct modes and methods of symbolism. Schwala de Lubitsch found it necessary to inquire into the nature of symbolism itself in order to even arrive at an understanding of what a hieroglyph is. This is carried out in two small books, Esotericism and Symbol and Symbol and the Symbolic, or as I like the French, Symbol and Symbolique that these ancient peoples thought differently than we do and that we must understand this difference if we are to study them properly seems obvious. But an example will show you how difficult it is to put this idea into practice. Shwala explains in the Temple of Man that in the ancient temple civilizations of Egypt, numbers our most ancient form of symbol, do not simply designate quantities, but instead were considered to be concrete definitions of energetic formative principles of nature. The Egyptians called these energetic principles netas, a word which is conventionally rendered as gods. In considering the esoteric meaning of number, we must avoid the following mistake. Two is not one and one. It is not a composite. It is a multiplying work. It is the notion of the plus in relation to the minus. It is a new unity. It is a sexuality. It is the origin of nature. It is the culmination, the separating moment of the full moon, for example. It is the line the stick, movement, the way, Wotan, Odin, the meter, Thoth, Mercury, spirit. Also when the ancients considered the process of mathematical multiplication, their mode of calculation had a direct relationship with natural life processes as well as metaphysical ones. Schwala de Lubitsch called this mode the principle of crossing. Interestingly, today we continue to symbolize multiplication with the sign of the cross. The cross was not a sterile, mental, numerical manipulation, but a symbol for the process by which things enter into corporeal existence. 
all birth into nature requires a crossing of opposites. It can be the crossing of vertical and horizontal lines, which give birth to the square, the first measurable surface, or male and female giving birth to a new individual, or warp and weft, creating a fabric, or light and darkness, giving birth to tangible forms, or matter and spirit, giving birth to life itself. Thus the vital linking up of the mental abstraction of calculation with its counterpart in natural phenomena gave the ancient mathematician a living and philosophic basis for his science. Similarly, these ancient peoples did not use words as we do, that is, as symbol or sounds linked together, which have fixed, memorized associations and which we compose in sequential patterns within the mind. For them, words were a musical nature, or more precisely, speaking was a process of generating sonar fields, establishing an immediate vibratory identity with the essential principle that underlies any object or form. The pharaonic intelligence that Shuala de Lubitsch reveals to us was not the visualizing analytical mentality we know, but a sonar intuitional mode. In the Egyptian temple, wrote Caspar Mespero, the human voice is the instrument par excellence of the priest and the enchanter. It is the voice which seeks afar the invisibles, summoned and makes the necessary objects into a reality. But as every one of the tones has its particular force, great care must be taken not to change their order or to substitute one for another. I mentioned earlier I was trying to translate Italian and I did an interview with one of the most brilliant female Egyptologists. Her name is Athon Veggi and she actually has uh, <laughs> retained memories of ancient Egypt and she has amazing stories but she so brilliantly explained this idea of the word, if you will. So let me read you a little bit of what I translated just to show you the challenge of how incredibly difficult it is. Um, and it speaks to this topic as well. So this is a translation from Athon. The magician in Egypt was the one who knew how to utter the words of power. He was Ur-Hekau, he was the great master of the righteous word. Because everything had to be connected with the original emission of sound. This is what created the whole universe. Back to Lola, or Maspero as the case may be. Clearly, this approach to Egyptology demands a qualitative change on our part if we are to enter the pharaonic spirit. And this change in our thinking may offer us perspectives not only on the vastly different intelligence of the past, but on the limitations and excesses of our present intellect as well. This meticulous meditation on the stones and statuary of Luxor 
also raises far-reaching questions on the function and nature of history itself. In particular, we begin to see that Egypt may have left us some essential keys to help us find our way towards an integration of things metaphysical, mathematical, musical, and psychological. As a civilization, Egypt certainly holds up to us a model of this reintegrated expression of the various planes and parts of our individual natures and of the cosmic life of our universe, and thus may prove of greater value in the spiritual crisis now confronting us than the religions of transcendence adapted from the various ancient Eastern cultures. Egypt was not of the lineage that advocates transcendence and denial of material existence. It taught, rather, transformation. The ancient name for Egypt was Kemi, meaning black earth, the field of vital transformation. The Arabs, Shwala points out, called Egypt alchemy. Thus, we find in its very name that age-old universal doctrine so often disguised in symbols and parables. This doctrine encompasses a vision of the principle of matter as a field of existence responsive to and capable of being transformed by spiritual influences brought about through the evolution of embodied and individualized consciousness. This lost alchemy, the pursuit of which extends back to its flowering in ancient Egypt, can be seen as the hidden esoteric roots of both civilization and individuals throughout recorded time. It is this same alchemy which is at the core of the vision of the anthropocosm, of man as being and containing within himself the entire universe. This vision, which is introduced by Shwala de Lubitsch in these pages and expanded and brought to life in his major work, The Temple of Man, leaves us with a single enduring message, the inevitable resurrection of the spiritual essence which has involved itself in matter in the form of organic creative energy. This resurrection depends upon the transformation of the material universe, or, to express the idea more as Egypt left it imprinted in the stones of Luxor, the birth of the divine man, symbolized by the pharaoh, depends upon the transformation of the universal mother, the materia prima. This transformation was considered the sole cosmic goal. Every human birth participates in this alchemy, either in an awakened manner, through the intentional perfecting and expression of one's higher nature, or unawakened, through the tumult and suffering of karmic experience, leading eventually to a spiritual self-awareness, the temple in man. The intensification and heightening of human consciousness was believed to cause biological and even cellular changes in the physical body of the initiate. This divinization of the individual body, on the microscopic level, comprised the goal and the purpose of the evolution of human consciousness in general. 
Within the Temple of Egypt, psycho-spiritual growth was wedded to precise intellectual and physiological disciplines, which acted to accelerate the influence and transformative effects of spirit, of spirit over matter. With Egyptian alchemy, we are considering, then, a science in the highest sense of the word, and one very different from our own. It was science directed towards the embodiment of spiritual knowledge, towards the internalization and corporeal expression of intellectual and spiritual powers, rather than mechanistic utilization of knowledge power for the exploitation and manipulation of the earthly environment. Boom! The temple was the pinnacle of the collective life, ever guiding the energy of the long-lived civilization of the Nile Valley toward the gestation of a divine humanity out of the transitory human form. Beautiful, Robert. Absolutely beautiful. And I hope that you enjoyed this, my lovelies. More soon. Hello, lovelies. I am so excited to announce the release of our new film called Heka. Heka looks at the magic of ancient Egypt and how that pertains to the story of ancient Egypt and fills in a whole new perspective that we have been missing collectively for hundreds of years. It features Gordon White, Chance Gardner, Joseph Patrick Farrell, Lon Milo Duquette, Tobias Churton, Graham Hancock, of course, the fabulous John Anthony West, Rupert Sheldrake, Stephen Skinner, Thomas Sheridan, Peter Mark Adams, Thomas Joseph Brown, Aton Veggie, Mog Morton, Bernardo Catstrop, Shauna Holm, Mark Passio, John Zaraki, and the goddess Joanna Kujawa. I am so incredibly proud of it, and I invite you to come and have a look. You can find a link on MagicalEgypt.com.
Material. Immaterial. Immaterial.